0: Please bow your heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord in prayer to seek His blessing on the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we can speak Your Word. We can know many things. We can hear often, but unless Your Spirit moves, nothing happens. The Spirit who breathed out your word must breathe it into our hearts, that it might find reception, a warm reception in us. So open our minds and our hearts that we might see wonderful things in your law, for Jesus' sake. Amen. What does it mean to tolerate others? Oxford's Companion to Philosophy on Religion says toleration is the enduring of something disagreeable, it is not indifference toward things that do not matter. And it is not broad-minded celebration of differences. Tolerating another's actions is quite compatible with trying to change another's mind. We can take religion extremely seriously, believe that we are clearly right and others are egregiously wrong in a matter of huge and holy significance, and still decide to tolerate their propagation of the error." End quote. Compare that with how the word misinformation is used today. Or contrast it with the United Nations Declaration of Principles on Tolerance from 1995, which says, and I quote, "Tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism." Tolerance means you can't be dogmatic and you cannot believe in absolutes, otherwise you are not tolerant. The first kind of tolerance from Oxford's Companion to Philosophy on Religion bears with people who disagree with you on absolute truth. You disagree that Jesus is God, I can bear with you. Can't be a member of this church, but I can bear with you. You deserve to be heard. You can have a place in society. The second kind of tolerance is the absolute rejection of all absolutes and anyone who believes in absolutes. The absolute prohibition of absolute truth. The only absolute is that there can be no absolute. That sounds like an absolute absurdity. Love is love, says the world, unless you love Jesus for who he presents himself to be in Scripture. Then your love is redefined as hatred and deserves the world's hatred because everyone knows that the Jesus of the Bible does not believe that love is love in the way that the world wants to believe that love is love. This is what New Testament scholar Don Carson calls the intolerance of tolerance. He wrote a book with that title. But it is nothing new. Jesus told us to expect it in John 15 verses verse 18 through 16, verse 4. John 15, 18 through John 16, 4. If you want to open your Bibles there with me, John 15, verse 18 through chapter 16, verse 4. And what we'll see is that the world's hatred for the church is inevitable. It is inexcusable. But it is not invincible. Follow along with me as I read John fifteen eighteen through chapter 16, verse 4, where Jesus is instructing his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also, For the church is inevitable, verses 18 to 21, and inexcusable, verses 22 to 25. But it is not invincible, 15, 26 to 16, 4. Those three points will organize our time together in God's Word this morning. But first we need to figure out how John and how Jesus are using language. What kind of if is the if of verse 18? If the world hates you. Is this saying... The world might not hate you, but in the al- in unlikely event that it does hate you, then da 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 Or is it more like, if and when you discover that the world hates you, and you will discover that the world hates you, probably sooner rather than later, da 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 Well, the pattern for the world's hatred of Christians is the world's prior hatred of Jesus himself. Jesus had already said to his own brothers in John 7, 7, The world is not able to hate you, but it hates me, because I testify concerning it that its works are evil. Ah, there it is. The world cannot stand being told that it is factually wrong, much less that it is morally evil and condemnable by the Holy God. They cannot bear to hear that even from Christ himself, much less from Christians. What then does Jesus mean by the world? All people without exception, all people without distinction, or the world as a moral and spiritual system in opposition against God? Well, probably what he means is all people who love worldliness will hate you for taking Jesus' side in testifying to the evil that the world does and loves. The mere presence and example of your holiness, Christian, the sensitivity of your conscience to your sin and the sins of others will rebuke them in their sinful opposition to God. Worldliness, in this sense, is not the idea of being worldly wise or street smart or city savvy or cosmopolitan. Worldliness in this spiritual or moral sense is the system of human thought and values, the worldview that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. If you like that definition of worldliness, you should read almost anything that David Wells wrote. Not David Wells, the baseball pitcher. David Wells, the theologian from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. That's his definition. Worldliness is is the worldview that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. People who love the world's way of thinking and acting will hate Christ and Christians for testifying against that way of thinking and acting. But then what does it mean to hate Jesus? Well, in a sense, theologian Herman Ritterboss is right when he says to hate in this context is to turn away from the way that God has opened for salvation in Jesus. To hate Jesus is just to not love him, to be indifferent towards him. This hatred is the human no, Ritterboss says, to the divine yes expressed in the mission of God's Son. God's saying yes to you in Jesus. By giving him in his blood and righteousness to you to trust him. That if you trust in Jesus, God will reconcile you to himself out of your sin. And the world says, nah, I don't think so. I don't want that. Because I would have to turn from my sin and my self-righteousness. I would have to admit that I'm a sinner. I don't want to do that. So hating Jesus doesn't mean you're always yelling poisonous words against him or protesting against him on a picket line, or defacing church property, or using his name as a curse word. You don't have to do any of those things to hate Jesus. You just have to hate the fact that he thinks he deserves to be king over your life. Hating Jesus, then, simply means rejecting him, as the personal expression of God's saving righteousness and love for sinners. But in another sense, hating Jesus, as we discovered from Matthew 7, 7, means you resent how Jesus testifies against your moral guilt and corruption. What you resent, what you hate about Jesus, if you hate him, is that he doesn't think you're good enough for God. He thinks only he has been good enough for God, and he thinks he has actually been so good enough for God that he's good enough for you on your behalf for God. And instead of loving him for that and thanking him for it, you hate him for it. Because it says something bad about you, it makes you look bad, it makes you look needy, it makes you look helpless, it makes you look totally dependent on him for acceptance with God. You don't like that. So worldly people hate Jesus for making them look and feel bad morally. And if you love the Christ that the world hates, then the world will hate you too. It is inevitable. That's our first point. The world's hatred of Christ and the church is inevitable. In other words, it's predictable. It's going to happen. It's eventual. You can't avoid it. It's inevitable because the world hated Jesus first. When the world hates you because you love Jesus, then remember, Jesus says, you're in good company. I'm with you. They hated me before they hated you. They only hate you because they hate me. John reminds the churches in his first letter, 1 John 3, 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. That's why. Do not be surprised, brothers, John connects this to the hatred of the world for the church, that the world hates you. Because Cain hated Abel for the same reason. His brother's deeds were righteous. And they made his own deeds look like the wickedness they were. That's why the world hates you. The world hates Christians like Cain hated Abel and for the same reason. Ah, if there, only, if there were only no Christians admitting their sins, abandoning their own self-righteousness to trust in Jesus, obeying God's law, not perfectly but increasingly, the world would not feel so guilty. Isn't this why the LGBTQ community has tried to march through every institution of American society to silence any other conscience except their own. Isn't this why they want to make us accept homosexual pastors and members so that there's no one else testifying against them? Of course it is. Cain's spiritual family can kill every remaining child of Abel. Try as they might. But what was said of Abel post-mortem will be said of every martyred Christian as well. Though dead, he still speaks. Hebrews 11.4 You can kill a Christian, but you cannot silence him because his rebuke of your guilty conscience will echo from his grave and his blood will testify to them from the dirt. Though dead, he still speaks and yet non-Christian, there is still hope for you. Because if you turn from your hatred and trust in Jesus, then he will become to you the mediator of a better covenant. Because his sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His blood, Jesus' blood, speaks to you a word not of accusation, but of forgiveness, of reconciliation to the God you've offended. To the very people that you have hated, the very Christ you have hated. The world's hatred for your love to Jesus, Christian, though, proves your election. That's not me talking. That's Jesus talking. Look there in verse 19. Look at your Bible in verse 19. The world is humanity in opposition to God and his Christ. Worldliness, as we have observed, is the Christless worldview that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. To be of the world, then, means to share the world's view of itself, of reality, and of God. It means to live life in step with the spirit of the age, whatever that spirit is. It means to love the world and all that is in it, according to John. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. To be of the world means that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is how you choose a job, it's how you pick a mate, it's how you choose where to live, how you buy a house, how you spend your time, it's how you order your priorities. Those things are how you live your life. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. What does flesh want? What does pride want? How does self want to be treated? Well, I guess I know my answer to my question. I guess I know how I'm going to decide this issue. I guess I know what I'm going to buy and where I'm going to live and how I'm going to live and why I'm going to do those things. That view today is summarized in the yard signs that you see in my own neighborhood with these kind of phrases. In this house, we believe kindness is everything, love is love, you are unique, your body, your choice, feminism is for everyone, science is real, we can make a difference, love lives here. Love lives here in the love is love way of thinking about love. That is the secular statement of faith. And if you don't sign on, you're out. Not quite as inclusive as it claims to be, is it? Because the world hates Jesus and those who follow him. While it claims to co-opt love. And redefine it for what they think love ought to mean. If you criticize that creed, the world hates you. tells you the only thing that's wrong with the world is you and your love for Jesus. So here, stick a sign in your yard. But here John says Christians are not of the world. If we felt at home in the context of this worldliness, then the world would treat us like family, wouldn't it? But Jesus says the world's hatred proves... That we are not of the world, but that I, Jesus, chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's what makes us different. What makes us different, Jesus says, is the truth and doctrine of election. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now notice the logic there. Notice the logic. Be careful. Jesus does not say because you were already not of this world, because you were better than the world and you lived better than the world and you knew better than the world knew. Therefore I chose you out of the world because you were better before I chose you. What makes you? Not of the world is Jesus choosing you from out of the world, out of your own prior worldliness. It's not that you were already morally not of this world. You were of this world. You were not superior to the world, and it was not on that merit that Jesus chose you is that the only reason you're not still of this world is that Jesus chose you from out of the world so that you would no longer be of the world and that you would love him more than you love the world. That is why the world hates you, because you are not of this world. Attitude and behavior proves that Jesus chose you from out of this world. Now, listen, that's not the anthropological reason the world hates you. Nobody at work or in your neighborhood or in your school or the non-Christians in your family, nobody's looking at you and saying, oh, man, God chose him and not me. That's not the human reason. It's the theological reason. It's the ultimate reason. Unbeknownst to your unbelieving family and friends. Now, look at this, Christian. The comfort of persecution for Jesus is that it proves He chose you for solidarity with Him, first in His suffering, then in His glory. Remember what Jesus said. The word that He said, the servant is not greater than his master, John 13, 16, when He's washing the disciples' feet, or the messenger greater than the one who sent Him. There it applied to them serving each other As Jesus had served them in washing their feet, here it applies to suffering the world's hatred for the sake of loyalty to the same Jesus that the world hates. If they persecuted Jesus, they'll persecute you for your resemblance to Jesus and loyalty to him. If they kept Jesus' word, they'll keep yours. We do not deserve any better treatment from the world than what Jesus received. Do you get that confused in your mind sometimes? Why do I have to suffer so much? Maybe compare your suffering for Jesus to Jesus' suffering for you, and you won't ask that question. But we all ask it, don't we? They crucified Jesus. So don't take the world's hatred personally. Because, as Jesus said, all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Why do they do these things to Christians? What's the human reason? The world hates Jesus and his church because it does not know God. That's the human reason. They don't know. They will do all these things to you, hate and persecute you, because they do not know the God who sent Jesus, unbeknownst to them. Many of them think they know God and Jesus better than we know God and Jesus. And that's why they want to persecute us. You're preaching about a God that I don't believe in. I don't believe in that God. I don't believe in a God or Jesus who would say or do A, B, or C. Because that's just too difficult. What is it that they don't know about God? Well, they don't know that Jesus is His divine Son. They don't realize the eternal seriousness of sinning against this infinitely good and holy God. They don't know that it is their own sin against God's infinite holiness and love that it deserves eternal conscious torment in hell, just like our sin deserves. They don't realize that they need to repent not only of their sin, but also their self-made righteousness and self-reliance before God. They don't know that God's righteous wrath against our sin can only be satisfied by the blood of his Son, not by any works that we can do. They don't know that God never saved anyone for their ethnicity, whether they're in the majority or the minority. They do not know how far they are from meeting God's standard on their own power or how far God has stooped down to their misery with his mercy in Christ and his blood and righteousness. They don't know those things. Hate has become a pretty loaded word these days. But Scripture critiques how the world has hijacked hate language. The world says the church hates humanity Because we call worldliness evil. The world hears that moral critique as hatred. The world calls it hate speech when we call them to repent of their sins as we are repenting of ours so that they can be reconciled to the God who loved us in Christ. But the world has a word for doing that. You know what that word is? Gaslighting. That's gaslighting the church. Have you heard this word? Probably read it on a blog somewhere, read it in a news article. It's the world projecting its hatred of the church <laughs> onto the church. Saying, no, we don't hate you, you hate us. Ah, Hard-pressed to make that case from John 15, from what Jesus says. Moral disapproval is not hatred. Jesus testified that the world's works are evil, and he is not hateful for testifying that. The world hated him for that. Jesus calling the world to realize its sin and repent of it is an expression of Jesus' love. That is also true of the church. The church does not testify to the evil of the world because the church hates the world but because the church loves the world and wants people to realize their sins so that they can repent and be redeemed from them. In fact, Jesus says, it's the world that hates the church for preaching that worldly people should repent of the sins they cherish. Or think of it this way, the world says the church hates people because the church itself is ignorant of God's love. The church just hasn't understood God's love, but the world understands it. God's love must be permissive of everything that we find pleasurable. Jesus says here, though, that the world hates Christ and the church because the world is ignorant of God. It's the world that doesn't know God, not the church. Are there churches that act like they don't know God? Yep, there are. Is that Jesus' point here? No, it is not. The world does not know God, Jesus says, 1521. That truly ignorant hatred is not the attitude of the church to the world and its sinfulness. It's the attitude of the world to the church... For calling out its sinfulness. The world says the church hates those who find their identity in their sin. Jesus says worldly people hate the church because the church will not rationalize or excuse their sin. In fact, the world hates any worldview that says you can't just create your own reality or impose your own chosen meaning on yourself and on the world around you. This is the intolerance of tolerance. As long as you subscribe to the broad point of view that says, I can impose my own meaning on my body, my mind, my relationships, my world, then you're golden. But once you subscribe to the Christian worldview in which God alone gives ultimate meaning to self and world, then the world treats you as a pariah. Now, who do you love? Where do you want to fit in? Where's home? So friend, if you're a non-Christian, listening to this, considering trusting Christ perhaps, considering repenting of your sins, considering becoming a Christian, now is the time to count the cost. Now is the time. Loving Jesus will mean being hated by the world to some extent. No Christian gets a pass on this. Do not listen to preachers or preaching that try to convince you that becoming a Christian is only going to make your life a bed of roses, it's only going to make your life in this world easier. It will not. Jesus does not promise that. There's a sort of riddle to being forgiven of your sins and loved by Christ. Here's the riddle. Forgiveness is free, and it will cost you the world. Forgiveness of your sins is free in the sense that you cannot earn it or buy it. It has to be a gift. God doesn't forgive you because you're a good person. God doesn't forgive you because you turned over a new leaf. God doesn't forgive you because you walked an old lady across the street or you had some stranger over for Thanksgiving. You can't earn it. Your sins are just as bad as mine. Your sins are so bad that you can't do anything to make up for them in God's eyes. Because the seriousness of the sin is determined by the seriousness of the one who it's committed against. And all sin is committed against God. Against you and you only I have sinned, David said in Psalm 51, about his adultery and murder. Those are sins against the second table. But David knew they're against God. Forgiveness is free to you. Because it was purchased by Jesus without any contribution from you. Jesus earned it for you by his complete obedience to God's law on your behalf and his endurance of the whole curse of the law on your behalf so that he could become your wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He's the whole shebang. You don't contribute wisdom to your salvation, you don't contribute righteousness or sanctification or redemption. Jesus is all of that to you, it's free. Yet, to be forgiven, you must take God's side against all worldliness, even the most popular forms, even the forms of it that when you take God's side against it, people hate you for it, and they misunderstand your love and concern for them as hatred of them. Yeah, even that. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That's what the world lives for. That is what you must let go. That is what you must stop approving. Forgiveness is free, but it will cost you not only your loyalty to the world, but the world's loyalty towards you. Now listen, that cost is worth paying. That cost is worth it. Because the dividend is eternal life. And the alternative is eternal conscious torment in hell, which is real. And also, just as inevitable as the hatred of the world, if you do not repent. It's also urgent because you don't have an eternity to figure out who you love more, Christ or the world. So turn from the world, turn from your own worldliness Transfer your loyalty from the world to Jesus. It is costly, it is urgent, and it is eternally, infinitely worth it. If you're interested in that, I would love to talk with you after the service. Meanwhile, the church should not quit testifying to the world or against the world simply to avoid the hatred of the world. Nor should the church begin to call evil good and good evil just to avoid the hatred of the world. One of the yard signs I saw has all the statements of the secular faith. Science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. And then it ends with, Jesus is Lord. Excuse me, what? Which Jesus would that be? That's religious liberalism, which is a whole different religion than biblical Christianity. When study that, read J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism. They're two different religions. Norse churches organize corporate worship services as concerts followed by TED Talks in order to deceive the world. Oh, we're of the world too. See, we can give you a concert followed by a TED Talk and you'll leave here feeling really great. You know why we do church the way we do it week after week? That's why. That's why. Because we are not of the world and we're not allowed to act as if we are just in order to fill a few seats. Now Jesus says here the world hates us because God shows us out of the world precisely to become different from the world. Now again, election is a theological reason behind the world's hatred of Christians. At the same time, it is the Christian's comfort amid the world's hatred world's not choosing you is it world doesn't want you on its team anymore at recess that's okay how is that okay why why is that ever going to be okay with you the only reason is because jesus chose you that makes the world's hatred okay or better it makes you okay with the hatred of the world God made a distinction between you and the world he plucked you out the world doesn't like it that God makes a distinction between his people and not his people The world wants to think everybody's the same. Isn't that what global culture is about? That's what globalism is about. We're all the same. We all believe the same thing. Every religion is leading to the same God. We're all good enough, smart enough. We can all do anything. That's not the message of Christianity. And that's the ultimate reason the world hates you, because Jesus loved you and chose you. Now, election doesn't make the hurt of the world's hatred go away. It still hurts. But it does comfort you in that hurt. Oh, okay, the world hates me for my Christianity, but I'm a Christian because God chose me in Christ. Jesus chose me. And it is better to be chosen by God in Christ than to be accepted by the world. I've got to get that through my heart. Election is the eternal comfort that enables me to endure the world's temporary hatred. Jesus doesn't want you to chafe at the doctrine of election. He wants you to cherish it. Because that doctrine is the backstop that prevents you from apostatizing. Because of the world's hatred, the world's hatred of you for your love for Christ makes you want to assimilate right back into the world, doesn't it? Ah, uh, maybe I don't want this after all. Ah, uh, maybe I don't like this hatred. Oh, this is getting tough. I'm losing my job. I can't get a loan. I don't have friends. People make fun of me. Ah. Remember, Jesus chose you. <laughs> yes. Whose side am I on? Why am I on that side? Because God chose you for it. That's why. Now, loving Jesus in the church doesn't eliminate all your enemies, does it? That's what we're learning here. (laughs) Sometimes we live the Christian life and we think, well, if I love Jesus, then I shouldn't have any enemies. Everybody should love me. Everybody should love me more because I love Jesus. Look, how great a Christian I am. Nobody hates me. It's not how Jesus talks, is it? In fact, your loyalty to Jesus will create some enemies for you that you didn't have before you were a Christian. Just like it creates a war between your flesh and your spirit that you didn't have in your heart because you were fine with your sin and you didn't see anything wrong with it. Yeah, now that war goes out into the world as well. Now you have enemies that you didn't have before because you love Jesus and the world doesn't love him. And it hates you for loving him. But don't take the world's hatred personally. They will do these things to you on account of Jesus' name. Jesus takes that hatred personally, so you don't have to take it personally. He takes it personally for you. This is about Jesus. Now, that does not mean that you're always sinless in your interactions with unbelievers. (laughs) If you cut someone off in traffic and they honk at you, And give you an obscene gesture? That's not because you love Jesus. That's because you cut them off in traffic. Or if you get sinfully mad in political debates with unbelievers and they curse at you, that's not because of Jesus. That's because you got sinfully angry at them. You lost your temper. But you cannot shave all the edges off of truth, can you? So if you're testifying to Jesus, you're living a holy life, faithful though imperfect, and people hate you for it, then you don't have to take that personally because Jesus takes it personally for you. Second point. I know it's late, but it's the word of God. That was my longest point. Point two, the world's hatred is inexcusable. The world's hatred is inexcusable. And there's a few reasons for the inexcusableness of the world's hatred of us and Jesus. First, the witness of Jesus' words in verse 22. Revelation generates responsibility knowing matters now that jesus has come teaching what he did the world's willful ignorance and their hatred based on it is inexcusable knowledge aggravates guilt consciousness creates culpability that's true in the courtroom it's also true in god's courtroom The world of Jesus' day did not have any excuse for sinning against so much knowledge, nor does humanity today have any excuse for rejecting Jesus after 2,000 years of having Scripture translated into multiple languages. Friend, if you're cynical or skeptical towards Christianity because you've seen hypocrisy in the church, we get it. We've seen hypocrisy in the church too. Let me tell you about the hypocrisy I've seen in the church sometime from my childhood. We get it. We've all seen it. But the hypocrisy of the church you grew up in is not an excuse for your ignorance of God or your rejection of Jesus and his people. Jesus is still worthy of your love and worship, even if the church you grew up in is not worthy of your respect. Jesus is still who he is, even though the church is not what it ought to be. And when you meet Jesus as judge on Judgment Day, he will not accept that excuse. His teachings and miracles preserved in Scripture render you without excuse, no matter what excuse you make. And Jesus has warned you of that right here in this passage. He's warning of you of it this morning. Second reason the world's hatred of Jesus in the church is inexcusable is Jesus' witness about the Father. Jesus just said the world hates Jesus because it's ignorant of God. Now he says, though, that the world's hatred of Jesus means that the world hates the Father. So do they hate God because they don't know God? Do they hate God for someone he's not? Or do they hate what God really is in himself? As he's revealed in Jesus. John's been clear from the beginning that Jesus truly reveals the Father. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's Jesus. Jesus himself has already said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To hate Jesus then is to hate what Jesus' faithfully reveals about the Father. When you thought you loved God, but Jesus reveals God to be something you didn't know he was. People who hate Jesus might love God for who they assume he is, but they hate God for who he really is revealed to be as he's revealed in Jesus. So friend, you... This means you cannot resent Jesus for what he says about God and still say that you love God in some generic way. Jesus doesn't believe that. That's what he's saying. You do not love God if you do not love Jesus. Jesus said that because Jesus represents God to us. Therefore, if you resent and begrudge Jesus for what he says about God, and whatever God you say you love, that's a projection of your own imagination. It is, as one theologian called it, a phantom which you named God. That is the worldview that's a crutch, not Christianity. Third reason for the inexcusable of inexcusability of the world's hatred of Jesus in the church is the witness of Jesus works in verse 24 evidence aggravates the guilt of unbelief Jesus did all those miracles to prove himself on our terms and yet they still rejected and crucified him as a fraud unbeliever if you are still stuck in your unbelief then the reason you don't unbelieve is not that Jesus hasn't shown you enough it's that you are unwilling to believe that Jesus is right about how helplessly you need him to save you from the power and penalty of your sins. You don't want to believe that about God or yourself or the world. That is why modern man doubts the miracles recorded in Scripture, yet it's these very miracles that prove Jesus true. We should notice here, too, that the world remains accountable to Jesus because of his teaching and because of his works. The world remains accountable to him. Rejecting Jesus is not the way to escape accountability. I mean, you talk about a crutch. You're just going to say, well, I don't believe that, so it doesn't apply to me. (sighs) It doesn't work that way. That's all too easy, isn't it? All too convenient for you. I don't believe that, therefore it doesn't apply to me. You cannot simply say, well, I'm glad I don't believe what you believe, or I'd be in big trouble. We're not requiring you to believe what we believe. You still have a life to live without believing what we believe. We're happy for you to live that life. But it doesn't mean that you won't be held accountable by Jesus. Willful ignorance is not the solution, it's the problem. You can't just double down. It doesn't absolve your guilt, it aggravates it. Fourth reason for the inexcusability of the world's hatred for Jesus and his people is Scripture's witness to Christ's character. Here it's their law. Their law testifies to Jesus' innocence. Whose law is that? It's got to be Israel's law. It's not Rome's law. Because <laughs> he's quoting the Old Testament. Psalm 69.5 or Psalm 35. Happens both places. He's been talking about the world this whole time. So what's this mean? It means that God's people had become indistinguishable from the world. God's ethnic religious people, the Jews, are the ones Jesus had been referring to as the world this whole time. The point of quoting Psalm 69 here, or Psalm 35, is not simply the Old Testament is true because it predicted Jesus. I mean, that's part of it. It's not less than that, but it's more. The point is that they hated me without cause is in the Scriptures that Jesus' haters said they believed. They are hating their own Messiah without cause, just as their own Scriptures taught them not to do. Now, Christian, look at all the religious knowledge you can have and still be no different than the world. This is what John has been at pains to show us all throughout his gospel. This is why J.C. Ryle said, Religious privileges are, in a certain sense, very dangerous things. If they do not help us towards heaven, they will only sink us deeper into hell. They add to our responsibility. Nothing is more common than to hear men taking comfort in the thought That they know what is right, while at the same time they are evidently unconverted and unfit to die. They rest in that happy phrase, we know it, we know it, as if knowledge could wash away all their sins, forgetting that the devil has more knowledge than any of us and yet is no better for it. Ryle says of such a person, the mere fact that he had knowledge and did not improve it will itself Prove one of his greatest sins. Third, the world's hatred is not invincible. Verses chapter fifteen, verse twenty six to sixteen, four. Because the Spirit will enable our testimony to Jesus despite the world's hatred. In the context of the world, Hating Jesus' followers, this is just the place for a promise about the Spirit. The Spirit as helper, we'll remember, is not so much a therapeutic comforter as he is a legal advocate, a friend with influence in a courtroom. This is why he is called the Spirit of Truth, because he testifies to the truth of Jesus in God's prosecution of the world when the world is trying to act as judge and jury against Christians and trying to get Jesus disbarred as our advocate. God's Spirit, though, testifies to the world, first with the apostles, then by extension with the church that sticks to apostolic doctrine and practice, abide in me. He is poured out on the church at Pentecost in Acts 2. He remains with his faithful churches still today, and he empowers our witness to Jesus' saving person and work as well. And Jesus warns us of the world's rejection so that we won't be scandalized by suffering when it comes. Jesus forewarns us in order to forearm us so we won't be disillusioned when the world hates us. In chapter 16, verse 2, unbelieving Jews who side with the world will kick Christians out of their synagogues. Scholars debate whether this kind of formal excommunication from the synagogue was already taking place during Jesus' day or whether this was a later practice of John's day, excommunicating from synagogues projected back into Jesus' time. But John 9.22 says Jewish leaders had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, that he was put to be put out of the synagogue. The Old Testament background of Jewish excommunication would have actually been the covenant curse known as the harem or the ban which meant an exclusion from the land of Israel, leading to eventual destruction. Jewish historians like Philo and Josephus of the first century were already applying that ban to morally defective Jews in Jesus' time. So instead of having some physical deformity that excluded you from the assembly, Philo and Josephus, Jewish historians in the Roman Empire during Jesus' day, were saying, no, That's actually a moral thing. That's got a moral component to it. If you're morally unfit to come into the assembly, you're excluded. And Jews who didn't believe in Jesus were applying that, Deuteronomy 23, to Christians to exclude them from the synagogue. That's how they would think they were serving God and killing Christians. Well, we're just applying Deuteronomy 23. We're trying to keep worship pure. We're trying to be monotheists here. One more note from theologian Andrew Lincoln will help us put all of John 15 together. He says that in the background of all of John 15, abide in me, bear much fruit. The fear of this kind of persecution getting put out of the synagogue, and its social dislocation caused some to be tempted not to remain or abide. Failure to abide in Jesus would be seen as realigning oneself either implicitly or explicitly with a persecuting majority group and as equivalent to abandoning one's former friends to their fate. That is, failing to love them and to show the solidarity that is willing to lay down one's life for them, end quote. I'm out. It's costing too much. See ya. In fact, I'm going to inform on you guys to save my own skin. Because crucifixion is better for you than for me. The way we overcome the world's inevitable, inexcusable hatred of Jesus in the church is by our spirit-empowered, persevering witness to Jesus, even to the death. That's how you win. That's how John puts it. Revelation twelve eleven. They have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. So the Spirit testifies to Jesus so that we can testify to Jesus even amid the world's hatred. For Jesus, That's how it worked in the apostles for the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. That's how it works for us in evangelism and preaching and disciple-making today. Any spirit that glorifies you rather than Jesus is not the spirit of Jesus. The spirit is a spirit of truth, not the spirit of feeling or experience or presumption based on feeling or experience. It's the spirit of the truth of Jesus. This is why John instructs the churches elsewhere. First John 4, 1, Beloved, do not trust every spirit, but test the spirits to see if it is from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The truth to which the spirit testifies is the truth of Jesus as God's offer of mercy to the world. That's why John says, 1 John 5, 6, the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the spirit of truth. The spirit is not testifying simply to who you are or who I am. You and I are not the ultimate objects of the Spirit's testimony. The object of the Spirit's testimony is Jesus and the truth of who He is. And that testimony is born on God's behalf to the world that still hates Jesus. And that testimony is given through you and me. As the Spirit testifies to us about Jesus, we in turn are sent to testify by and with the Spirit to the world about Jesus. This is why... Doing evangelism, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, building churches. That's not extra credit. That's not some Baptist distinctive. That's not being a Baptist with a capital B. No. This is it. This is just basic Christianity, man. We're not asking anything special of you. Testifying to Jesus is what the Spirit does in you and through you when you have the Spirit because the Spirit is the Spirit of truth about Jesus. Which means, if you're not willing to bear that testimony, what does that say about your experience of the Spirit of truth? The Spirit testifies to Jesus so that we can and will testify to Jesus. And we need the Spirit to testify, to bear witness, to convince, because apart from Jesus and the Spirit, we can do nothing, and we will wilt under the world's rejection. But with the Spirit of God, all things are possible. Even faithful gospel witness to a world that hates Jesus. Some people still think today that they serve God best when they treat Christians the worst. Now, to be fair, often that mentality is born from disillusionment with hypocrisy in the church, whether that's a Muslim critique of the Christian West or kids in Bible homes disillusioned with the immorality and inconsistency in the churches where they grew up. We Christians understand that disillusionment. We ourselves have to fight against it as well. But we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater by saying that I can be a better person without Christ than you are with Christ. Christian hypocrisy is not a reason to embrace a Christless spirituality or a churchless one. The true God takes Christless spirituality as hatred of himself. You hate me, you hate God. That's what Jesus says. You hate me, you hate my Father who sent me. You hate me, you hate my Father in whose image I am. Christless spirituality is not a creative way for you to love God. It's hatred of him. A Christian, don't be surprised or scandalized if you have to suffer for Jesus in your relationships, your vocation, your neighborhood, your family. Christian suffering is par for the course. Here's another riddle. It is more concerning when Christians do not suffer than when they do suffer. When Christians suffer for loyalty to Christ, Jesus says it shows that he, as our suffering servant, has chosen us to suffer with him and for him. To not suffer for Jesus at all, then, is to raise a question about whether your real identity and loyalty are in Jesus. You don't have to seek out the world's hatred. I'm not telling you to seek it out. I don't seek it out. It'll find you. And if it does, then you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and God rest on you. If you have biblical truth on your side, then don't be shocked or scandalized, even if worldly-minded, professing Christians hate you for your faithfulness to Jesus. Don't be surprised when they assume that they have the moral or theological high ground for treating you like that. It's exactly what the Jews did to the Christians. Kicked them out of the synagogues. J.C. Ryle was right when he said, Not all zeal is right. No one is so mischievous as a blundering, ignorant zealot. End quote. That's true. People who think they know God and don't know God are often the people who do the most damage. So member of Grace Covenant Baptist Church, disgruntled Christian, zeal is only good if it is married to biblical knowledge. Know what it is that you are being zealous about. Brother, sister, member of Grace Covenant Baptist, when we are hated like this outside the church, we cannot afford to fail in loving each other inside the church. We cannot afford to have a complaining spirit in our conversations with each other. We cannot afford to be the source of each other's discouragements. We cannot afford to act out our disappointment at every unmet expectation in our relationships with each other. We are already hated by the world. It is not only our union with Christ in chapter 15, 1 through 7, but also our love for one another in verses 8 to 17 that strengthens us against the hatred of the world in chapter 15, verse 18 to the end. So to fail in practicing our union with Christ, to fail in loving each other, is to leave ourselves without the comfort or camaraderie that Jesus had provided for us in communion with him and in the love that we have for one another in the church. Lovelessness is lethal to churches. And lovelessness often starts with a selfish, complaining spirit that's always disgruntled that the church isn't Enough about me. Andrew Lincoln said this as well. For love to be displayed, a community of disciples is required. A community that enacts the pattern of life of the witness in loving service is essential for the credibility of of the continuing witness in the world. Witness has to be embodied in community. In 1991, a Harvard graduate reflected back on his own education this way. Among my classmates, I believe there is one idea, one sentiment, which we have all acquired at some point in our Harvard careers, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is Confusion. They tell us it's heresy to suggest the superiority of some value, fantasy to believe in moral argument, slavery to submit to a judgment sounder than your own. The freedom of our day is the freedom to devote yourself to any values we please on the mere condition that we do not believe them to be true. Just don't believe it's true, and you can believe whatever you like. And it is into such a confusion that the Christian church and its members must continue to bear witness to Christ and to his divine Father, neither of whom tolerate just any way of thinking about him or relating to him, or living before him. We are called to this witness, even though the world's hatred is inevitable and inexcusable, even if it means we suffer for it. And yet, the world's hatred is not invincible. We can and will overcome it, but only by the Spirit of truth, the blood of the Lamb, and the word of our testimony. And that, Christian, is what you and I are called to trust. Absolutely. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Christ, you suffered so deeply, so intensely for us, so movingly, and yet we are slow to give up anything, even time or energy for you. You bled. You suffered. You agonized. You were ridiculed, misunderstood, criticized, crucified. They literally crucified you. You let them do that to you for us and for our salvation. And yet, when it has come to us being inconvenienced for you in any way, we have grumbled. Forgive us for our self pity our self-centeredness. Lord Christ, you testified to God's love for us, to your love for us, by dying. So may we testify to you, to your truth and righteousness, in our living, in our loving, and in our dying. Fill us with your spirit of truth that we might overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testament. For Jesus' sake. Amen.